This is Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss important health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today we have something timely and fascinating. A young psychiatrist, Dr. Joshua Williams, will join us. He's going to enlighten us about why pornography might be the strongest form of drug addiction known and how viewing pornography changes not only the chemistry of the brain, but even the structure and anatomy of the brain. That's scary to think about. So you may want to tune into this. You can also come back to our website, listen to it again later. But first, Andrew has for us some recent medical news. Today, I've got two articles actually both dealing with dementia. It's something that many of us, uh, it's touched our lives. We all know folks who are suffering as they become older with memory loss and, and severe dementia in some cases. And so one of the things I get asked a lot as a doctor is, how can I prevent dementia? What can I do? And a lot of things, you know, dementia is one of those things we don't have any cures for right now, and a lot of things we don't even know about. But I found two articles that, that showed some interesting correlations. So the first one is your marital status. And they found that married folks actually have less dementia than lifelong single folks, which was very interesting to me. And Andrew, how would you define dementia? You know, dementia, that's a good question. It's really the failing of mental capacities, especially in the elderly. And we've got questionnaires and diagnostic tools to help quantify that. But, you know, as people get older, it's it's not uncommon to have slower memory or trouble with some memory. But when you get to the point where, you know, not not even recognizing loved ones, sometimes not remembering things like where you are, uh, what year it is, it can become quite progressive. And so dementia would be kind of a group of degenerative mental disorders of which Alzheimer's is probably the most common. I heard one friend say recently that dementia is not forgetting where you put your keys. Dementia is forgetting what your keys are for. Yeah, that's that's probably a, a salient example, and it's uh, it's very scary, you know. Especially I've I've got a few patients that that feel these changes happening, and uh, they feel out of control. So tell me how my wife is preventing me from getting dementia. Well, you know, why is a great question, and that's that is not completely addressed, although they've they've alluded to a few things it could be. But the study itself looked at over eight hundred thousand uh, patients. And they found that people who were married actually had a 42% lower incidence of dementia um, than lifelong single people. And folks that were widowed had a 20% decreased risk. So even being married for a little while, uh, you seem to do better off than the folks who are lifelong single folks never got married. Wow. Well, that's a good thing to know. One more health benefit of marriage. And, And they did. They tried to surmise, you know, what could this be about? Is it just because you have a partner to go through life with that you have that extra mental engagement? Some folks thought that it was uh, intimacy that would be more common with folks that are married, and that may lead to it. Uh, But it's very hard to identify, and so that's something that hopefully they'll be able to address in future studies. This was done as a meta-analysis, which provides the best medical data because they pool a bunch of studies, but it's hard to draw cause and effect. Yes. It's, it's a lot more correlation. So it's, a, it's almost dangerous to say what you need to do, but we know that if, if you're thinking about getting married, uh, <laughs> you might have less dementia if you do it. So if someone's on the fence about marriage, this might put them over? It, it could. I mean, there's other side <laughs> effects. You've got to read the, read the package insert. You know, uh, other there's side a effects package to, insert? For marriage? I missed it. May, actually, maybe we're going to have to make a doctor-doctor marriage package <laughs> insert. But uh, it, it, it is one of the many benefits of marriage is that you will likely have a less uh, dementia. Very good. And you have something else on dementia. I do. In case we forget the first thing you brought up. Most people will not choose to get married to prevent dementia, but one of the things they can do intentionally, regardless of your state in life, is to change their attitude about getting older. And so this study uh, actually came from the journal of... I'm trying to find irreproducible it results. <laughs> PLOS. Oh, that one. Yeah, yes. PLOS, which I I read all the time, obviously. <laughs> and uh, the the study showed actually that positive age beliefs protect against dementia, 
even with folks who are at high risk. We've got at least one gene we know of, the APOE gene, that makes folks very high risk for developing dementia. And even in that group that have a high risk, high family history, the more positive attitudes they had about getting older rather than negative attitudes, less dementia. So in, in practice, I have a chance to see a lot of patients as they get older you know, a lot of people complain about it. They're like, it's no fun getting old. I hate this. If only I was 18 again, you know, I can't do things I want to do, you know, and they're just very negative and always kind of fretting about getting older. What about, what about those of us who are so happy we can't be 18 again? You know, <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've also seen folks that really identify, hey, I've got a lot to give back to my community. Uh, maybe they volunteer or help with their grandkids, things of that nature, where they are embracing this as a different phase in life, not something that they're fighting tooth and nail. And that is a choice, foundationally. You have a choice of how you want to respond. You may be predisposed, but you can choose how you want to look out towards the future. Well, this reminds me of a movement among, you know, the the highly successful to move from a point in their life where they are successful to being significant. So we're often, you know, successful in the things that we have tried to achieve but it kind of leaves us a little empty, and we really want to have significance. But they've shown that this doesn't only apply to the highly successful you know, builders of corporations. It also applies to the average person at some point in their life. You know what? I find more meaning and joy in giving back to others. So that can apply to anybody. A hundred percent. I think if, that, if there was a prescription to take away from this, it is not only to accept, you know, the kind of the hand you're dealt, your state in life, look how to give back to others, and likely you're going to be better off for giving back. Andrew, wonderful sage advice. And here we are on Dr. Doctor with Andrew Mullally, moving from medical news now into Andrew's preventive health care tip of the day. I know everybody loves the preventative tips, and we're, we're just plowing through the recommendations <laughs> from the USPSTF. And today I bring one from May of 2014 about fluoride. And so the USPSTF recommends the application of fluoride in a varnish to the primary teeth, the baby teeth, of all infants and children starting at the age of the first primary tooth eruption. And they recommend this be done in primary care practices. Um, what? MDs and DOs treating teeth? I know. It's, it's a part <laughs> of the body that many people stay away from, but it's one that we all have and frequently suffer with. I, I rarely meet people in their 70s and 80s who have not had dental problems, and so it's probably that we, we are missing opportunities to help folks. I always thought it was interesting as I was in gross anatomy lab first year of medical school. I mean, you're totally looking at the smallest parts of your cadaver everywhere. Except the teeth. Yeah. We didn't do squat with the teeth. We got to save those for the dental students. We do. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, you know, and, and there's actually an, an interesting, I think, Fort Wayne connection to the development of fluoride oh. uh, with one of the people who discovered it. You know, I, I, I think fluoride gets a lot of bad press these days. There's a lot of municipalities around the country who have actually voted to not have fluoride in their water. Oh, my gosh. Because it's been described as an industrial waste, a byproduct, something evil. Well, there's a lot of things that are byproducts. you got to get it from somewhere. <laughs> yes. And the way that fluoride was actually identified to be good was there was a dentist who ended up being from Fort Wayne who was, I think while he was in the military, he was down in El Paso or somewhere in West Texas. Mm-hmm. And he identified that these indigent kids... I mean, they didn't have shoes. I'm not sure if they had running water. They all had perfect teeth, (laughs) no cavities. And he said, what in the world is going on? But the water out there probably looked like milk. It was just so (laughs) full of minerals and vitamins. And then they were able to do some testing and distill it down to the fact that it was the fluoride that actually significantly prevented dental caries, the the technical term for cavities, and brought that back, I think, to Colgate, and now it's in toothpaste, and I think the world is better off for it, and many municipalities have even put fluoride into the drinking water to help the kids who don't brush their teeth very much. So how do you do this in your office? You know, it's something that we are rolling out. We have it available to patients, um, but I think a lot of doctors have not picked this up. It's a newer recommendation, but it's something I think is important. And so there's there's kind of the, the top three things, you know. Number one, if you, if you use fluoride for little kids on their, their baby teeth, 37% percent 
decrease on dental problems. Beautiful. And so I'm, I'm a parent, so I'm thinking about how much it costs to have my kids' teeth <laughs> drilled on. Yes. And so a 37% decrease in that, I'll, bu- I'll buy that lotto ticket every day. <laughs> yes. um, but also the pain, com- discomfort, you know, drilling, uh, all of those things. So we, we're definitely helping the children. Um, I always want to tell folks it's safe but you can overdo it. Mm-hmm. You can't just give your kids as much fluoride as they want. There is a toxic dose, but even with the most aggressive varnish application, they've done extensive blood work and shown that it's far less than half of the toxic dose, even with the most aggressive. So Good. used in the appropriate way, we recommend starting at six months of age and every three months having an application put on the children's baby teeth. Um, you can use fluoride toothpaste. Uh, most people do use it. You can start at two years old, about the size of a grain of rice should be the amount of fluoride toothpaste applied. And then after kids get to preschool age, you can use up to the size of a green pea. Um, but they, they actually recommend not giving your children water after they brush their teeth because it increases the chance of them swallowing it and potentially overdoing it if you've got a really tasty toothpaste. <laughs> so my last point is, you know, at the end of the day, you got to get your kids into a dentist. We recommend seeing a dentist by their first birthday, their first year of life. Some kids don't even have teeth at that time, but make sure that the gums are doing well and also to make sure that when the teeth come in, they're coming in appropriately. So that is the preventative care tip of the day. Wonderful. And now we move into our mood music for the medical trivia question of the day. And today, I thought we would go into the land of medications. There's a website called GoodRx, and I discovered this because it has helped many of my patients get less expensive medications. Well, on the GoodRx website, as of September of 2017, they listed the most common prescription medications in the United States. So the question is, which of these, as of late 2017, was the most prescribed medication in the country? And as a hint, it's used to treat a disease that is 10 times more common in women than in men. That's a great question. Well, thank you. And I'm sure you know the answer, and you won't spoil it, will you, Andrew? (laughs) Not yet. So the list of possibilities is, one, levothyroxine, two, atorvastatin, three, lisinopril, four, the combination of hydrocodone and acetaminophen, and five amlodipine. And they go by brand names, Synthroid, second Lipitor, third Prinville, fourth Vicodin, and fifth Norvasc. Which of these is the most commonly prescribed medicine in the United States? You've been listening to Dr. Doctor, where your hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mulally, and our guests discuss important health-related questions from an authentically Catholic perspective. This is Dr. Doctor with Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally coming to you from Redeemer Radio Studios. Andrew and I are excited today to interview Dr. Joshua Williams. He's a a child and adolescent psychiatrist practicing in the Chicago area. He's a Catholic father of three young children, and he's going to address the fascinating area of brain changes that are caused by pornography. Joshua, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Tom. Well, Happy to be here. And, you know, unless our listeners have been living in a cave without Wi-Fi, without television or mail, we realize that there is a pornography epidemic. Joshua, how big is this problem? I think bigger than most people imagine. Um, you know, the pornography epidemic is something that has been around for a while, but with the within the internet the uh the advent of the internet we're in a different age so let's try and understand the extent of porn use from the statistics according to a 2016 survey 60 to 70 percent of men and 30 to 40 percent of women younger than 40 use porn yearly and then 45 percent of men and 15 percent of women use it weekly wow. so that's a lot of pornography and, you know, as I mentioned with the Internet, before you had to look at a magazine and you could, and that was something you would hide or you'd have to go and get. But now, I mean, you have access to the Internet at the tip of your fingers at any moment during the day. So, you know, it really it really has become so prevalent, 
because you can just type the words into a search engine and there it is. In fact, you know, there's in 2006, there's analysis of more than a million hits on Google's mobile search sites and adult queries were demonstrated to be the most popular category with uh, more than one in five searches being for pornography. Wow. Um, yeah, so it's a huge problem. I've, I've heard that, you know, especially with the Internet, uh, kids even as young as eight, you know, eight years old, I heard was the average age of first exposure. A lot of times I feel like if you're thinking about an addiction and is kind of a gateway drug, it finds you. You didn't even intend to find it. Yes. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, you hit on a great point, which is it is especially a problem for young people. And, you know, it does hit you. You don't even have to look for it. And for children, their first exposures tend to be involuntary, so they don't go looking for it. Um, you're right. I mean, eight, eight may be a little on the young end, but I wouldn't be surprised, honestly. I mean, it's, you know, it's hard to survey these, this correctly and accurately, but there was a 2010 survey, which probably is a little old now, that said that 15% of youth were first exposed um, at the age of 10 to 12, and wow. then 23%, 13 to 15, and 28%, 16 to 17. But that's eight years ago, and the way our culture changes, the way information technology changes, I wouldn't be surprised if that is getting lower and lower. And actually, clinically, from my experience working with you know, children, adolescents, young adults, families, I do see it going earlier and earlier. Joshua, uh, the American Psychiatric Association of others have resisted the idea that there is a similarity between substance addictions like you know, cocaine or alcohol or heroin, and those from behavior-related addictions like gambling, overeating, and pornography. What's the status of that, and do you think the evidence shows that there are more similarities than differences? Yeah, there's definitely been some controversy as to whether pornography and sex addictions are worthy of the label of addiction. Um, you know, some see addictions as only encompassing psychoactive substances that you ingest, like drugs, and alcohol. But, you know, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, uh, the National Institute of Drug Diseases of Addiction, these organizations are really starting to, in earnest, say that behavioral addictions are very much like substance addictions. The American Psychiatric Association, however, you know, in, in this manual that we use for diagnostics, it's called the DSM, and it's on its fifth version, I think it was in 2013 it was published and you know to the shock i think of many many really important addictions were left out of it the only behavioral addiction that was actually in it uh, was a gambling disorder and in the back they put uh, internet addiction uh, but they only specifically mentioned internet gaming which right. i think was puzzling to a lot of people because you know there's so many things on the internet that we know to be addictive. And, and part of that is that, you know, the internet is full of, uh, you know, it's, it's, so, it, it's so quick with the click of the mouse, you get novelty right yes. before your eyes. And that, that is a, that is a hotbed for addiction development because, you know, that that's how addictions develop when you are, when you have this search for novelty over and over again, it really fires in your brain in a very particular way. That's similar to drugs of addiction. Yeah, exactly. So go into this. That's something I, I read in my prep for this is that intermittent novelty, unexpected as to exactly when the novelty is going to hit, drives addiction. Explain to our listeners what that means and what happens Absolute. in the brain. Sure. So I think that that is one of the key elements, that, inter, you know, that intermittent um, response drives the brain. It, so this kind of comes from evolution. Think of it this way, right? So... Our brains have been wired from a long time ago to search after the things we need for life. So the things we need for life, including sex and reproduction, food, those types of things. And, you know, when we were in ancient days, I think we only came across, uh, you know, food and mates pretty infrequently. So I think the brain was very much... Uh, adapted to trying to to be very sensitive to new things that it needed for the basics of life. And so, you know, the, because our brain is sensitized in that way, it's very, very um, sensitive to novel things in our environment. 
I mean, one of the areas to the, of the brain that sort of is is monitoring the environment for new things is, is the amygdala, mm-hmm. which is part of the reward circuitry of the brain. Um, and so I think with that particular element of inter- intermittent exposure, you get this, the, the brain likes that. Be- we don't know exactly why the brain likes that, but we assume that it's because um, it just kind of drives dopamine up in a way that other, a dopamine is one of the neurochemicals that your brain uses. Think of it as a conversation between the cells that make up your brain. So there are different, there are different ways that conversation takes place. So maybe dopamine is one of the words in the conversation, right? That drives the conversation between the cells in your brain. So we see from that intermittent exposure that dopamine is more active. For some reason, we like that better. And it probably has something to do with the way our brains are evolved. You're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where your hosts are discussing the brain changes caused by pornography with psychiatrist Dr. Joshua Williams. Well, Well, Joshua, take us through what happens in the brain if someone gets progressively addicted to looking at pornographic images, besides the dopamine, kind of the happy chemical, or one of the happy chemicals? Sure. So I think one thing you have to remember with the brain is that there are different pathways. And that what does that mean? What that means is that certain parts of the brain fire for certain types of activities. So one of the parts of the brain that I mentioned is a reward circuit. I'll try to leave out all the names of each part of the reward <laughs> circuit for the sake of our listeners. Let's just say that there are parts of it that have to do with emotions. So parts of it that have to do with memory and then there are parts of it that have to do with pleasure and also with control of those things so addiction kind of takes place in the brain through you know let's look at the behavior first that drives addiction so the the first stage let's call it the binge intoxication stage right so there are different types of drugs and then also different things like food and sex and the internet and gambling that really activate this reward system. And that's where you get this flood of this, this chemical called dopamine. I said sort of the, the, the chemical that's driving the conversation in the reward system. And what happens is with these types of addictions, this, the more and more you go through that pathway with this flood, this, this just complete flood of dopamine that the brain may have not have really gotten used to in the past. I mean, this is really more and more we're seeing that with internet pornography, especially, you know, this is more than we're used to. This is kind of super, this is the brain on fire. Yes. Um, because of the frequency of this, we're not used to this. So what happens is you get this positive reinforcement. Um, and then what happens is, there are, th- there are changes in the brain. We call them neuroplastic changes. So what that means is that the brain is changeable. So maybe, you know, 40, 50 years ago, we would have said, well, no, after someone has a stroke, for example, the brain, you know, we're, it's not changeable. That's, that's it. You know, you don't regain that function. I think these, what we know now is that you do, you can, to some extent, regain function. And that the brain, you know, even though there are parts of, part, there are times in our life especially when we're young, when um, it's developing at a rapid rate. But throughout our life, there are going to be changes that take place there. So, And that's really dependent upon behavior um, and environment and genetics. So the reason I mention that is because, you know, when you view pornography at, and, you're, and let's say you're somebody who maybe has a genetic predisposition to developing an addiction, well, the internet pornography viewing, what it happens is that you flood your reward system with dopamine, and then the reward system at that point develops what's called tolerance after this flood happens for so long. So you get, you, it takes a lot more, you know, it takes a lot more um, pornography and a lot, let's say a lot more perversion and a lot more, you know, kind of the, the dark side of porn. Well, all pornography is dark, yes. but especially dark side of pornography is the way in which, you know, it combines violence and, you know, all sorts of perversions. And, and that drives, people like 
that who view porn because it's novelty and your brain likes novelty. And so, but part of the reason on the brain level is because you develop this tolerance. So that's really the first stage. Second stage is kind of this stage where you really start to get a negative emotional state after the flood of dopamine and after you view pornography and have sexual climax. And part of that has to do with this, your body's stress response, right? So your your brain doesn't like that flood of dopamine for too long. And then what happens is with the, uh, there's an increase uh, you know, and there's an activation of the stress systems and a dysregulation of them, which leads to decreased sensitivity to rewards. Um, and that uh, that's also what I mean by tolerance. And then you get this issue with um, this pain and emotional feeling that you don't like. Your emotions are sad, anxious, on edge, and you don't like that. And so that's kind of what withdrawal is about. Withdrawal is that you don't, you, your brain does not, like the absence of the addictive substance, so in this case, porn. And so it does anything it can to avoid those feelings of anxiety, depression, uh, just stress that happens when you don't be porn. So, so that's how it, it drives the addictive process. So this is the second of the three stages of addiction. We need to take a quick break right now, and we'll be back with more Dr. Doctor coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor with Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally coming to you from Redeemer Radio Studios. Today we are interviewing Dr. Joshua Williams, a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist about brain changes caused by pornography. So, Dr. Williams, just to kind of summarize some of the things, you've been talking about the three-stage model for addiction with the intoxication occurring first and then the withdrawal Mm -hmm. After they develop the tolerance, they withdraw when they're not using the substance, in this case, pornography. Does that, does that cause them to, to not take joy in normal activities that they used to enjoy? Correct. That's part of the issues. And so that is why they're, they're constantly in search of novelty in, in pornography, because when you've come to that stage, you don't feel good. And you, you want to, you want to feel well and you want to, you know, you're, you don't like that. Your brain doesn't like that its balance is off. What is but the third that, part of that addiction model? Sure. Um, so stage three of the addiction model is the preoccupation anticipation phase. So that really um, has to do with craving. So let's say here's sort of how this works. You've set down these pathways through the changes in the brain we talked about before the neuro, we call them the neuroplastic you know changes and impairments and what happens is that we've we've shown how they you know they affect the reward circuit in the brain but they also affect other you know regions of the brain those regions of the brain that they affect have to do with thinking and motivation and memory and regulating your impulses and then also patience, you know, delaying the rewards. And so all of a sudden now you develop, you know, this impaired response. And so your brain can no longer function to turn off the switch. And so let's say before the stages of addiction really take place, what would happen if you, let's say, viewed pornography one one or two times, let's say would be you would start to think about it and you try to gain control of it. And so that's the the part of your brain that starts to think about whether or not it's a good or bad thing or whether or not it's something that you want to continue to view is the, what we call the prefrontal cortex, the, um, you know, the higher parts of the brain. And, and, and those, Joshua, those one, one of the ways I like to think of the prefrontal cortex, you know, when somebody isn't thinking straight and someone makes a dumb decision, that's when people tend to do the face palm. It's usually my wife or daughters do it when I make a dumb decision. And I tell them exactly. the part of the brain behind the face palm is the part that's not working right. Would that be accurate? Yes, absolutely. Right. Exactly. So, so go ahead. <laughs> and, and so, <laughs> You know, that, that's a much easier way to explain it. I'm going to use that from now on. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that, that upper part of the brain, the face, the face palm part of the brain, that all of a sudden now is, is 
turned down, it's turned off. And if you look at the, the brain studies from addiction, you'll see that the connections between that higher part of the brain and the lower part of the brain have have a lot of times become less, you know, so the, the brain talks through these connections. And, and when you look at the, the, the scans, you see that those parts of the brain are just not what they used to be before. And so basically what that means is you stop thinking um, and you don't really care about anything but the addiction and your brain all of a sudden has developed this uh, preference for cues related to the drug addiction. So cues related to pornography. And so it's interesting because you might think, well, do you really just want the pornography itself? Do you, are you looking just for the dopamine rush and the reward? Well, actually, it's interesting because you, you, you're actually looking for more than that. It has to do more with you've, you've changed your brain in such a way that even little cues, things that remind you, you know, of pornography or remind you of, of those things can become, become what you look for. And the process from seeing that and then going and using there's a rush there that's involved as well. So that, that's called, you know, that craving, that craving in and of itself is what, what you actually start to seek. And so that's what makes addictions so dangerous is that it's not even just the substance at that point. It's, it's the whole process. You really just want that, that craving. You want to go and search. You're ready for the hunt. Wow. Well, you're here uh, listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio with our guest, Dr. Joshua Williams, talking about brain changes in pornography. Well, you've just described this reward system that everybody loves. Now, it's a natural part of the brain. You know, speaking as a Catholic, why would you say God put this reward system into our brains? What's its natural purpose? The natural purpose is, you know, for when it comes to love and relationships and sex, the natural purpose is to drive reproduction and relationships. You know, so how does it that drive that long-term sexual... relationship between a husband and a wife? Yeah, absolutely. So what you'll see is that you know when if we think of the sexual arousal cycle that takes place with sexual intercourse, there's going to be a point in time in which you know oxytocin, one of these other brain-related chemicals, and you know is released, and that is a powerful. Um, chemical that is released as you're building up to sexual climax and that forges is a bond and that bond is something that the brain remembers and so you know even when you hold hands or you know kissing or those types of things or just being in the presence of somebody that you love that chemical is released and you know it's even what drives mothers and babies to bond together so there's a lot of debate over what pornography does to the brain in terms of oxytocin. Some people would say you become bonded to porn because oxytocin is released when you're viewing it. And so you're not being bonded to the, your spouse as God meant you to be. Instead, you're being bonded to the pornography. Now, that's, that is actually controversial. There are some people that will say, no, that, that's not even backed up by the studies. But what they will say is that it's such a shame because you aren't bonding, right? So you're, you're using this reward system that God gave you to, to bond with another person, to generate human life, and to feel good. So the reward and the feeling good and the pleasure are, are God's gifts. You know, that, that is part of it, you know, I think. And that's, the, that's really the cake. That's the icing on the cake. But the, the whole cake is the relationship. But with pornography, so some people who say, well, maybe oxytocin isn't released, what they're saying is that, well, what a shame. It should be. Sex should cause you to want to bond. And so you're really losing out on bonding by viewing pornography. Is it not only that you're losing out at that time, but is it weakening relationships you already have? I would say so. Um, you know, based on the brain chemistry, but also on clinical experience, absolutely. I think that this is, a, this is an epidemic as well with internet pornography. So... You know, if you think of what is it, you know, if you look at the studies, what's associated with internet pornography in terms of relationships? Less satisfaction from sexual intercourse and relationships. The divorce rate is, you know, that relationships that end, let's put it to you that way. So any relationship, whether it's marriage or dating relationships, you know, there's a higher chance that they're going to end if the individuals are, are looking at pornography. And I think what happens is that 
I think especially for the women, it really violates their sense of trust. And so all of a sudden, the man is no longer looking at his wife in the same way. And all of a sudden, he's so, it, it, this is the other, uh, let me just put this out there now, which is that when a man views pornography and all this novelty, he gets a lot of ideas about what sex is supposed to look like. Uh-huh. And so then, you know, these ideas can be quite perverse. There's often violent images in there. And so when he goes back to his wife or his girlfriend, what ha- or let's, let's say it should be his wife, but if it happens to be his girlfriend, it, he goes back there and, and has these expectations. Not always, but in a lot of cases, they might be subconscious. And so when you walk into the room or you're trying to bond with, with your wife and all of a sudden these images are in your brain, you have a very, very hard time becoming aroused by sex with your wife. And that is so detrimental. I've had uh, conversations with several patients kind of on the women's side, the the other side of that, where they're they're faced with kind of these spoken or unspoken expectations or or thoughts of how this is, quote-unquote, supposed to work. And I think that's a whole new level of damage that pornography does to relationships. Not only does it supplant kind of that bonding that's God intended to be with your wife, but now it's it's introducing these things that are not really in the natural order necessarily at all, um, and given the idea that this is how it is supposed to work. Absolutely. I think you make a good point there. You know, it really is, uh, it really takes the beauty of this gift from God, this relationship, and it just makes it into to really a, a shadow of what it's supposed to be. So. And Joshua, besides the chemical pathway changes, are there also some changes in in the volume of certain parts of the brain that happen with time? And if so, what's the uh, what happens because of that? What are the consequences? Yes, yeah. So if you look at the neuroimaging studies, the studies of the brain, there we, we won't go into all the ways that we look at that. But what you do see is that, yes, certain areas of the brain change. Uh, the control area of, area of the brain, the, the prefrontal cortex that I mentioned before, you do see some volume changes. Basically, the size of it starts to go down, uh, which is part of the reason, I mean, you can speculate what that might do. If you're no longer able to to do the, the things in daily life and you become your memory and your concentration, uh, your patience really is compromised on a daily basis because of that. Um, there's also some changes that take place in parts of the brain related to the reward circuit. Um, you know, specifically the amygdala is another part of the brain in the reward circuit. Um, has to do with positive and negative emotions and, and, you know, partly has to do with um, emotional memory. Um, and so that part of the brain, yes, you do see um, that and also part of the, uh, another part of the brain related to um, the actual pleasure and things like that, that starts to really you know, go down in size in some of these studies. Well, um, Dr. Williams, we'd like to cut to a quick break. We're, we're going to take advantage of your presence and bring you back in our rare third segment uh, to continue the interview. But right now, we'll need to take a break, and we'll be right back with Dr. Doctor, coming to you from Redeemer Radio Studios. This is Dr. Doctor, where your hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Malawi, and our guests discuss important health-related questions from an authentically Catholic perspective. And now, for that moment our listeners have been waiting for, uh, hopefully they'll get a little dopamine release in their brain because they've been waiting to hear the answer to the medical trivia question, which is, according to the GoodRx website in late 2017, which of the following is the most dispensed prescribed medication in the U.S.? That means what prescription did patients fill the most in 2017? And the hint was it's used to treat a disease that is 10 times more common in women than men. Is the medication levothyroxine or thin synthroid, which is used to treat hypothyroidism? Is it two, atorvastatin or Lipitor, treated, treating high cholesterol? Is it three, lisinopril, also known as Zestril, used to treat high blood pressure and heart failure? Is it four, 
hydrocodone mixture with acetaminophen known as Vicodin or Norco? Or is it number five, amlodipine, known as Norvasc, to treat high blood pressure and angina? I've, I've got to say, Tom, I think without the hint, I would not have picked this out, although it makes sense now, now that you say it. Yes, and, and the hint was it's used to treat something 10 times more common in women than men, and that disease is hypothyroidism. So it's actually wow. thyroid hormone, levothyroxine. In 2016, there were 4.5 billion filled prescriptions in the United States. 123 million of them, or 2.7% of them, were for levothyroxine, or replacement of thyroid hormone that people needed. Now, with the uh, huge opioid addiction epidemic, people might have thought that it was going to be Vicodin or Norco, but it was actually mm. number four in 2016. And these are the top five prescribed medicines in the country. Is that right, Tom? That The top five in order, according to the Good Rx website. Well, we are fortunate to have, continuing with us, uh, child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist Joshua Williams, and we've been talking about pornography. Well, we've been talking about how the brain gets hijacked by pornography. I guess before I go on to the, my question is, would it be accurate to say that in the addiction cycles in the brain, it, in this case, isn't differentiating between uh, an outside chemical cause of the addiction versus the the viewing, the visual images causing the addiction, or is there a fundamental difference? So specific, I think your question gets to whether or not, you know, is there a difference between how it looks when there's dr there are drugs in the picture yes. versus yeah. pornography? Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, for the, for the most part, yes. And, you know, there are some subtle differences, but I think, I think the take-home point today is that, yes, absolutely, it does look like drug addiction. And, I, I mean, I have a lot of reasons that I think it may not have been included, despite evidence presented to the American Psychiatric Association. You know, it's all speculation, but I, but I will say that, you know, I, I do think there might, it seems to me, among psychiatrists, at least, that I talk to, and psychologists, that they're kind of, you know, it seems to be this, wanting to normalize pornography yes um you know so that 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 drive to normalize pornography is is problematic because then you sort of look you you're blind to the 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 neuroscience and the addiction medicine behind it um so i think that may have been you know i don't i don't know that for a fact but it, it you know, they said basically when they, did, they didn't include it in the manual, it's because there wasn't enough evidence. Well, fine, like there has been more evidence since 2013. So, you know, in future editions, let's, let's get it in there. But I'd be surprised. Let's move on to what's important now for listeners who might know people who are suffering from this addiction. At some point, addiction begins with a willful choice. But then it becomes a habit and the compulsive cravings that really have very little of the will involved. What do you understand as a Catholic and a psychiatrist, the relationship between free will and the addiction itself, and then how that plays into successful treatment? Right. So I think your best preventative medicine for addiction is to maximize someone's willpower in all cases, because you never know whether or not somebody is going to be genetically predisposed to, to an addiction. Um, you don't know what the environment looked like. You know, when it comes to trauma is one of those things that can later be result in addictions in the right person or other psychiatric disorders are associated with it. And so what that means for me as a Catholic psychiatrist is that um, I don't want to play with fire. I don't want to tell the person to play with fire. So, you know, if, you know, if they've looked at pornography and we're in the early stages of it. I don't want to assume that they're just doing it one or two times. And even then, I don't want them to do that. So, you know, I, I want to say, okay, you're looking at something that has, uh, you know, that has a potential to be uh, addictive. And so let's look at your willpower. Let's make some good choices about it while you're still there, while your upper brain is still working, while you're still connected with the world and you have some control over it. But you are right, and the person who does become addicted to it, I think what happens then is that that, that one of the biggest hallmarks of addiction from a behavioral perspective is this loss of control over the action. So much so 
that they really neglect they, they neglect to look at the negative side of it you know even if it's right in front of their face so you start to take more time money let's say you're not going to work anymore your relationships are suffering but you're blind to it you know the addiction is so powerful that you're really blind to all those signs that you're you're in fire you're in the middle of the you're you're on fire and you know you're you're it's dangerous and you're blind to all the signs that it's dangerous. And so you're sucked into this cycle of compulsive behavior and, cra- and craving that, you know, it becomes, it, it becomes beyond you. But that is, that said, this is where, you know, even the 12, you know, 12 step programs continue to be ador- endorsed even by secular you know people in the field because they realize that you, you can't control it. And at some point you do have to ask for help from God you know, that spiritual component has to be there because you have to recognize that you may be past the point of willing it yourself and that God needs to be there to help you. Dr. Williams, you bring up a good point about past, the, the patient being past the point of willing it. You know, in Catholicism, we have confession and we, we are culpable for sins that we commit, especially the ones we choose to commit. But there are some things that, that we do and we don't, really intend to do them, except we still do them. And so that diminishes our culpability. How, how do you tease that out with something like pornography, which we know is wrong? How, how can you tell how much the, the person, maybe the, the penitent, if it's, a, if it's a priest talking to a, a person going to confession, or the patient, how much is this their will and how much is this just being, they're just being carried along and they don't have much control over it anymore? Well, one of the things I will is that frequent confession with the same priest really helps in this regard. So if you can get connected early on with the spiritual director or confessor, I think they're going to have a much better sense of where you are in the cycle. So if a priest can do that, then they can see at what point you seem to be still in, in control of some of it. So they might say to you, okay, from, from day one, it always should be recognized that the, the matter is sinful itself, right? So this is grave matter. It's it's something that, you know, God does not want us to do, and we need to be forgiven for it. Um, you know, it may, at, at some point, if it happens at such a frequency and to such detriment of other parts of our lives, then they might say to themselves, okay, is this something that you feel like you've lost control over? Um, are you working on gaining control? Are you trying to really, um, are you there to amend your sins? Are you there to seek out help? So you try to say, hey, th- at that point, you, you know, you give them absolution, but you also say, I need you to go and, and seek treatment for this. I need you to, you know, strengthen these other parts of your life, your prayer life, your relationships, your friendships, your work, you know, and all these things you can still gain some mastery and control over it. But then I do think that in some cases, you do have this compulsive drive that starts to become beyond their control and can escalate pretty quickly. But even then, the fact that they're coming to confession, you know, we, we, even if we don't have a mortal sin to confess, we come to confession and we, you know, we talk about our venial sins or we talk about those ways in which, you know, we're failing, you know, maybe just, you know, in ways that we, you know, sins of omission or things that are predispositions. So maybe you're saying, hey, you know, I'm in this cycle of addiction, but I, I just, I still need mercy. And, you know, the fact that you're coming for mercy, that that grace that you get from the sacrament is, is going to be key. And yeah. I think along the way, the priest has to inspire hope that, yes, we can get past this, but it's going to take more. It's going to take God's mercy. It's going to take natural natural uh, science and, and, and working with therapists. And God gave us those gifts as well and working on our friendships and our work. Joshua... <laughs> We have one more question we want to cover in the last two minutes here. And you have said in a previous discussion that part of successful treatment involves the patients doing meaningful work and possibly being participants in various arts. Tell us how that's involved. Yeah, so I I do think that work is key and working well builds fortitude, builds patience, and so in, in that way, it really is a, an exercise for those parts of the brain that can maintain control over cravings and over addiction. So, you know, one of the ways that we engage that is through, through working well, 
through mind, you know, working well starts with mindfulness and becoming, you know, in the moment, putting away distractions, uh, setting goals and, and um, really optimizing those goals and kind of throughout the work, you have to sort of take, take, uh, take account of yourself, you know, every, you know, half an hour, let's say every 15 minutes, every hour, you know, as long as you're always asking, am I doing my best work? then mm. I, you're growing in, in the virtue of fortitude and get, moving past those things that would pull you down and, and, and give you, you know, kind of drive you to work poorly. And I think the same thing is with the arts. You have an engagement of that, uh, you know, that, that optimal. You, it's actually kind of ideal, the arts, because with the arts you have that innate drive it comes, you know, it's rewarding. So yes. it actually does have that intrinsic reward that you would find from things that like food and, and, uh, you know, sex or things like that, that there is an intrinsic reward to the arts. It's an engagement of that part of your brain and an engagement in the part of your brain. That's more, it's attuned to longer term rewards that come from hard work and, uh, you know, creativity and impulse control. So you're um, finding meaning in those things which you do not yes. find with the pornography. Dr. Williams, you have been a wonderful guest. I'm sure our listeners are enjoying this. We may well have to have you back in the future. But for now, to all our listeners, thank you for listening to Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until next time. And please remember that your medical decisions can have profound consequences. So please, choose wisely. Choose Catholic. Next week on Dr. Doctor, pediatric orthopedic surgeon and author Dr. Joseph Dutkowski will join us to discuss his book, Perfectly Human, and what he has learned from children with disabilities about what it means to suffer, to be human, and to be happy. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1, or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com doctor and in the Redeemer Radio app.